Well, uh, we're beginning the story of Joseph today. Such a great story. And um, we'll spend four weeks on this, although uh, we'll take next week off because I'll be out of town next week in a family reunion and we'll have a guest speaker, a guest preacher in our midst next week again. Many people struggle with how to view the the terrible things that happen in life, in their lives and in the world, in light of the fact that God is a good and loving God. And one of the Bible's greatest stories in terms of being helpful to those who are struggling, seeking answers to this question is the story of Joseph. Now, um, this is a long and complicated story. It's not a difficult story to understand, but it is a long and complicated story. And um, I could spend, literally, I could spend all four weeks, the whole sermon, just going over the details of the story. I don't want to do that, for obvious reasons. So I'm trusting that the people in the congregation are familiar with this story. Some of you are familiar already, probably more familiar than I am. Others of you may need a little refresher. So I urge you, if you are one of those, that you might just go back and read, starting with our chapter today, Genesis 37, and, and go through the, most of the rest of the book of Genesis and reread the story of Joseph. Or you could do what my wife and I did this week, and you could watch the movie of Joseph, um, which uh, you can find on Amazon Prime, although it costs uh, it's two parts and it costs three dollars each part, but it is a faithful telling of the story of Joseph. And um, if you want to know how to find that, I'd be happy to help you. Um, but I do want to rem uh, say that it is not G-rated, so I don't recommend you letting little children watch it. The story is not G-rated. The story itself, it's not just the movie. Okay, so today we're going to take the first chapter, chapter 37, and I'm going to read the 36 verses of this chapter. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing, pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. When he told to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves around, gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, 
Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. He said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they, where are they pasturing, pasturing their flock? And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors which that he wore, and he took, they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and say, said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without hope, without doubt, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his robes and put sackcloth on his 
loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up and to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, which of course is where we will pick the story up in two weeks. So you remember the story of Jacob's wives who bore him 12 sons and one daughter. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but he got tricked by her father Laban into marrying her older sister Leah. But Rachel was the one he really loved. Well, because Leah was unloved, God opened her womb and she bore Jacob his first four sons. Then Rachel was jealous and talked Jacob into taking her maidservant Bilhah as a slave wife and Bilhah bore Jacob two sons. Well, this upset Leah and she gave her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob who bore him two more sons. That brings us up to eight. Then Leah bore Jacob's ninth and tenth sons to him and Dinah his only daughter. Then finally, after Jacob had twelve sons, uh, ten sons, God opened Rachel's womb and she bore Joseph. And then a number of years later, when it seemed like all the childbearing was over, Rachel conceived one more time and bore Benjamin. But his birth was the end of Jacob's beloved Rachel, for she died in childbirth. Well, all of this led to a tier system among the sons of Jacob. The top tier included Joseph and Benjamin, the two sons of Rachel, the one Jacob loved. And then came the six sons of Leah. And on the bottom tier were the four sons of the slave wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Benjamin was probably still a toddler when Joseph was 17 years old and our story begins. But even Joseph, that we're told in the passage, was more like a boy compared to the grown older brothers who were full men. Even so, everyone knew that Jacob favored Joseph above the rest. That's why Jacob gave Joseph this special coat. We're not really sure what kind of coat it was. It's not clear in the language. But we do know that it was something that set him apart from the others. But it was probably also symbolic of the fact that we read about in Genesis 35:22 and 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, that Joseph was being treated as the firstborn, even though he was the eleventh born. That Reuben, the firstborn, had forfeited his right to be the firstborn of the family, and Jacob was bestowing that right upon Joseph, and that was symbolized by the giving of the coat, probably. All this caused quite a bit of consternation among the brothers, 
and much resentment towards Joseph. The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah on the bottom tier were the most hardened toward this kid who, treat, who was treated like a prince by his father, the father that didn't seem to have any love for them at all. What made it worse was that whenever they said or did anything that Joseph thought inappropriate, Joseph would tell on them, bringing a bad report about them to their father. And as a, res a result, their hatred was so deep that they couldn't even speak nicely to their brother. Then Joseph's two dreams rubbed salt in the wounds of his brothers. Now dreams are turning points in the story of Joseph. All of them sent by the Lord. We have the dream of the baker and the wine taster in the prison. And then we have Pharaoh's dream of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of want. But the first dream... The first dreams in the story were Joseph's two dreams in our chapter. First, the sheaf dream, where all the other brothers' sheaves bowed down to Joseph's. And then the heavenly bodies dream, with the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowing down to Joseph. And the meaning of these dreams was clear to the brothers as well as to J Jacob. And we don't know... Joseph's attitude in relaying the information about these dreams. But we do know their effect, that they deeply offended Joseph's already jealous brothers. And then the second half of chapter 37, beginning in verse 12, Jacob sends Joseph out with help for his brothers who are tending the flocks in a... In a uh, area that was not that close to where they were residing. And when he finds them, eventually their anger boils over. Father Jacob isn't around, and some of them want to kill Joseph. The older ones, it seems, don't want to go that far, and so in the end they throw him into a pit and sell him to a caravan of traveling traders headed to Egypt. They put animal blood on Joseph's coat and bring it to their father, claiming to have found this coat, but not having seen Joseph. Jacob, of course, assumes that his son Joseph has been killed by a wild beast and grieves deeply. In fact, Joseph's grief over Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob's grief over Joseph hangs over the rest of this story like a dark cloud of gloom. Until, of course, he realizes that Joseph is indeed alive and well in Egypt. Now, in future weeks, we'll read about how Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and how God prospers him there, and how he suffers there, and how eventually he rescues his family, including the brothers who hated him, and is ultimately reconciled to Jacob and to all of Jacob's sons again. Now Christians have always seen the story of Joseph and the person of Joseph as a Christ figure who leaves the comfort and glory at his father's right hand but in the end he saves the very ones 
at whose hands he unjustly suffered and is then exalted to a high place. So at many points in these four weeks, we're going to be referring to the Christ connections that we find in this story. So let's start there today. At the beginning of this story, Joseph has an exalted position. He's most loved by his father. He's destined to rule over all the others. He lives very much at his father's right hand. But then comes his humiliation. Joseph comes, and and by the way, um, you can see the pattern of the life of Joseph in much the same way you can see the pattern of the life of Christ. It begins with exaltation, and it goes down to humiliation, and then returns again to exaltation. And uh, it, is, it might be helpful to you to uh, think of this as a great U, uh, U like the letter U, a capital U. Um, it's been referred to this it's referred to with this analogy many times where uh, it begins with glory, humiliation, and then exaltation. And um, it's important that we, if we're going to see the connection between Joseph and Christ, that we see the parallel in in the way that he followed the same path. So his humiliation now um, he, he comes to his brothers and again here we see the parallel with Christ he comes to his brothers seeking their welfare and yet they are planning his demise like Jesus he sought brothers but he found murderers as it says in John 1.11 about Jesus he came unto his own But his own did not receive him. They were also deaf to his cries for mercy. Even enjoying a nice meal together while he languished in the pit. In a sense, what his brothers did to Joseph was worse than murder. You know, you can understand a person who just loses control of his anger and breaks out and kills another person even his own brother but this hatred here had also an eye to business to make a profit off of one's brother instead of raging passion it is cold blooded calculation and selfish advantage you know we, we would it would be a terrible thing if someone down the street or someone in our community or someone in our nation would, would get angry and kill his brother like Cain killed Abel. It's another thing entirely to take your brother and sell him to human traffickers. But that's more like what's going on in this story. What happened to Joseph at the hands of his brothers? And also to Jesus, what Judas did to Jesus. Jesus, the new and greater Joseph, was also sold to the enemies of his people by the sons of Israel on account of jealousy. 
And who did it? Well, it was Judas. And interestingly, Judas is Greek for Judah, the very one who sold Joseph into slavery. Rejected by his brothers, unjustly punished as if he'd done some great evil, Joseph became a prisoner. But in the end, amazingly, he ends up saving the very ones who sold him and forgiving them. And he becomes exalted as their hero, even as they were humiliated for what they had done to him. The humiliated exalted, the exalted humiliated. Every valley shall be exalted and every hill made low. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Joseph was in a sense the stone that the builders rejected which became the cornerstone of their own lives just like Jesus. Had he not been exalted in his dreams he would not have suffered as a slave and a prisoner. And if he had not suffered as a slave and a prisoner he would not have been exalted in Egypt or become Israel's savior. Now we're going to turn to application. And the first thing I'd like to mention in terms of application has to do with the authenticity of scripture. When we read stories like this, one of the things that's remarkable about the Bible is how they reveal the faults and corruptions of people who are supposedly the heroes of the story. In the Old Testament, among the people of God, it was founded upon the twelve patri the patriarchs, and in particular the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob, who became the twelve tribes of Israel, the people of Israel. The New Testament, people of God were founded upon the twelve disciples. And yet the story of both of these groups is quite sordid. Here we see in this chapter the ugly underbelly of the Old Testament 12. And the story of the, uh, the disciples and the Gospels isn't much better. Why would this be written and included in Scripture if it was written as a f just by someone making it up to make... The, to explain the story of how all this got started. It just doesn't make sense. The Bible doesn't hide the flaws of its characters. It speaks the truth, even to a shocking degree. And that helps us to put our trust in the authenticity of the scripture. But the greatest lesson of the story of Joseph is how God rules over the lives of his beloved, how God's power is greater than human sin, and how God even uses human sin to accomplish his good and wise purposes. This life is not a do good and get good in return life. 
And if you are trying to think of life that way, I would urge you to stop today. It is not a do good and get good in return life. Sometimes it seems closer to no good deed goes unpunished. His brothers didn't know what a treasure Joseph was. They treated Joseph like worse than trash. You know, trash, you can, you can live with trash. At least if you're like me, you can live like trash, with trash. I know some of you, you put a piece of trash in the trash can and it bothers you until the trash can's emptied. I don't get that. That's what trash cans are for. They're to hold the trash. Put the trash in the trash can, it's just fine until it's time to empty the trash. But this was worse than that. The brothers, it was like, honestly, it was like dung. You don't have dung around and just ignore it until it's time to clean it up. You clean it up right now and get rid of it. And that's the way they treated Joseph. He was worse than trash to them. The Ishmaelite traders didn't know what a treasure they had in their possession. He was, Joseph was just like a pot that they found that they could sell when they got to Egypt. Just something to carry and resell for a profit. And it didn't get much better when Joseph got to Egypt. No one recognized who they were dealing with and what a treasure he was. God allowed him to suffer this. And his pain, think about it. You know, don't just read the story to find out what happens next. Read the story and put yourself into the shoes of the people who are experiencing the story and you'll realize what Joseph went through. The rejection, the aloneness, the pain. It was intense and God allows his children sometimes to go through intense and repeated pain. But Joseph's suffering was needed and when we get to the end of the story, we see that. Not just for others, but even for himself and for us. Also, his suffering was not the end of the story. The story ends with his exaltation, which couldn't have happened apart from his suffering. What an amazing God oversees the lives of his people. Jesus himself, he never did anything wrong. And he was the most persecuted of all. And he calls us to walk on his path. And so it is that the righteous get persecuted. The righteous suffer pain. Sometimes deep, profound pain. But... They are the treasures of God nonetheless. And God never forsakes them. He carries them through it. And he brings them out of it at the other end. In a way that they, even they can see the glory of it. And the purpose for it. And this life 
that we live here on this earth is also not the end of the story. You know, God is hardly even mentioned in this story. In fact, it seems like the things happening are as far away from God as it could be. But in the end, we find out that God was very much in the story. Even using evil acts done by evil people for his wise and glorious purposes. The story is about the darkness of human sin. But even more, it's about how God's sovereign grace is greater than the darkest evil. God works even through people with the vilest intentions in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. We see this in the story of the cross. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 4. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, he's praying, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God uses evil people with evil intentions to do good for his people. What an amazing God who can turn violence and malice and tragedy into triumph and redemption. There is so much irony in the way that God works. Here we see that he uses human hatred to bring salvation to the very ones who hated. Just like was true with the cross. God uses sin to work against sin. He uses evil to work against evil. God sometimes sends deliverance in the form of unscrupulous slavers. It doesn't look like this is deliverance. But it was deliverance, wasn't it? In fact, the ugliness of the first part of the story makes the beauty of the end of the story so amazingly vivid. You see, God is not limited by human sin or imperfection. God is not limited by human incompetence or human greed or human apathy or human corruption. Even in their rebellion and sin, Men fulfill God's design. So God can be trusted even in the face of calamity, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of loss, even in the face of failure, even in the face of temptation, in the face of danger, in the face of aloneness, in the face of financial ruin. We look out on our gloomy world and we think, how can I be happy in such a world? Well, read the story of Joseph. You can be happy because in the midst of all the ugliness, we can know that we are loved by the one who rules it all. 
And that the very things which look bleak and daunting are his tools for good in our lives. In many ways, this is an unpleasant story of jealousy and hatred. And yet, over the churning unrest, God's rainbow of peace shines. Like in the beginning when there was the, the, the waters were disturbed on the face of the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over them. And much like in the story of Noah, God's rainbow of peace shines over it all. The very sins and crimes done to J Joseph were the very path to the fulfillment of God's purposes. And so it is for us. And there ought to be a rainbow of peace that shines over the triumph and over the trouble of our lives and of our world. If we belong to Christ, the rainbow is there, even if we don't see it. You know, I don't know about your house, but at our house, every once in a while, someone shouts, there's a rainbow. You run to the window. You just wonder how many rainbows were there that no one even noticed. Well, that's the way it is. There's always a rainbow. But often we miss it. This is true about our lives, but it's also true about Christ's church. In the story of Joseph, the hope of the world lay in a dysfunctional family. Many times, it's not that far from the situation in the church. It's impure, it's torn by schisms, it's fraught with fraud, it's tormented by false teaching. So many see dysfunctionality in the church and just leave. But the church is where Jesus lives. When Jesus came to the earth, it didn't mean that the earth stopped being an ugly place. But it was where he lived. And so it is in his church. It's where he lives. It's his house. It's his family. In the midst of all the dysfunctionality, the church is still the bride of Christ. I don't mean every church, every group that calls themselves church. I don't mean every person in every church. But Christ is still building his church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The fact is, this is us. We are the church. We are the dysfunctional family which God loves and works with and even sees fit to use for the glory of his name. People who give up on church can see how dysfunctional it is. But what they fail to see, often, is that they themselves are dysfunctional objects of Christ's mercy. Just like the rest of us. For the sake of my voice, I'm going to uh, stop here and, uh, and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Joseph. 
and for the Jesus that it points us to. We thank you that your hand works in all things for good, even though it doesn't seem like good to us, dear Lord. But we see that you are so much wiser than we are, so much mightier than we are. Who are we, dear Lord? We're specks that, that uh, see such a little piece of reality. We're so blind to so much. So we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us in our lives to walk humbly before you, to trust that you know better than we do, to let you be God and to stop trying to climb on the throne ourselves. Oh Lord, help us to learn from the story of Joseph that even though others may have meant it for evil, you mean it for good. And to rest in that and trust in you. And now, Lord, we come to the table of our Lord, which reminds us of his sufferings, but also of the wonderful good that came about as a result of his sufferings. May we celebrate this strange economy that you have revealed to us, whereby the very things that look hopeless bring hope to the world. And we pray, dear Lord, that not only would we enjoy the forgiveness and the fellowship of Christ but that we would hear the message of the sacrament that even what looks like disaster and calamity is actually a part of a beautiful work that you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.